The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal with them shrewdly, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She, she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of God. Pharaoh's daughter, right, Wendy? Right. <laughs> That's right. We are starting a, a new series today. I'm excited for this. Um, a new series over the next couple months in the book of Exodus. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with stories here and there from that second book of the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, but maybe you've never actually studied it slowly and systematically. Well, we're going to do that together with myself and Pastor Yancey uh, preaching through this. Uh, the word exodus, you may know, uh, means exit 
or departure. And it refers to God's people, the Israelites, and their departure from slavery in Egypt and their coming into the arms of God as his covenant people. Now, that's the central story of Exodus. It's not the only part. That's just the first third of the story. Uh, the remainder of the book is their wanderings up to Sinai and then the giving of God's law, his covenant to his people. And we're looking forward to growing in learning about the grace of God and the person of God in this study. So fasten your seatbelts. Uh, we're looking forward to it. This is the first installation. And so before we begin, uh, let's say a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads and pray. Jesus, thank you already for the reading of your word. Uh, we know that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And that means even, even the reading of your word has the power to pierce our hearts catch our attention. Maybe there was something, some word or phrase that's already caught our attention. Do that again in the next several minutes. Uh, capture our attention. Change our minds about something. Pierce our hearts with grace, with truth, with repentance, with faith, with comfort, with whatever it is that we need. And bless this time for our good, but ultimately for your glory, that every one of us would hear from these words of yours and come away saying, wow, that God is really great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, briefly, a, a, a reminder, or actually a notice, I forgot to mention this a second ago, um, we're going to be starting up a Q&A time. Uh, which we used to do on a regular basis. Uh, we pulled that out of the rotation, especially during the COVID season. But that means right after the sermon, uh, I'm going to walk down there with a microphone and give you a chance just to ask any question that's on your mind, even an irrelevant question. That's okay too. Um, but just a chance for you to ask about something that came up in the sermon or that you see in the passage, or maybe a hard question that you have about God. Any question is fair game, but just want to open up some conversation in our community, a chance for you to respond. And so uh, write down or store up in your minds questions that you want to ask. But let's Let's turn our attention to Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. I don't know how you spent your holidays over the last couple of weeks, but uh, over the holidays, I had the opportunity uh, to visit my uncle and aunt, uh, my mom's cousin. And this was a special couple. They have two kids, a little bit older than myself, probably the closest family to us that we grew up with did family vacations together. They lived about an hour and a half away from where we grew up. And so I still remember getting butterflies in my stomach as we would drive over to their home, maybe once a year to visit them. Butterflies, not out of nervousness, but sheer excitement. They were family and they were a joy to see them. But I hadn't seen this aunt and uncle for about 15 years. Uh, sitting with them again, eating some treats, watching her open up and peel an orange for us, just like old times, reminded me of the affection that I have for her, the memories. And as we were catching up and speaking, I began to notice my aunt's sense of humor, her, her smile, the way that she would tell stories, uh, her easygoing nature. Uh, I've known her my whole life. Like I said, I, I've known her literally my whole life as a child until adulthood. 
And yet I felt the desire to get to know her all over again. Someone I knew and yet didn't know. Someone that I had been introduced to, but yet had to reintroduce myself to all over again. That is something like the position that the Israelites, God's people, were in their relationship with God. For hundreds of years, even generations, they were in Egypt, not in their normal routines of being in communion with God, still in covenant relationship with him, and yet he had become in many ways like the aunt that he had, they hadn't seen in a while. The story of the Exodus is one of God who would re-enter into a saving relationship with his people, reintroduce himself by name, and spend the whole story making himself known to them, revealing his person, his nature, his character through the things that he did and through the things that he said. Again and again, we hear the phrase, I will make myself known, I will make myself known to you, to the Egyptians, to the world around you. God wants to reveal himself. He does, even as he carries his people and communes with them in the wilderness. And so over the next several weeks, several months, we're going to be learning not only about the events of the Exodus, but also about the character and the work of God as revealed in these different scenes. So we'll learn about things like the plagues and the supremacy of God, uh, the manna and the provision of God, the Exodus and the salvation of God, the tabernacle and the nearness of God. Today, we begin in Exodus chapters 1 and 2 with the basket and the providence of God. The basket and the providence of God. This story begins, you might have noticed, as a story of pain. Joseph was the favorite son of the patriarch Jacob. We read about his story at the end of the book of Genesis, chapters 37 through 50. Uh, through a number of different circumstances and tragedies, amazingly, Joseph ends up being sold into slavery to Egypt, then somehow rises in the ranks, finds favor with Pharaoh, and becomes a prince or governor of sorts, second in command in Egypt. We learn about this in Genesis chapter 41. Eventually, during a famine, the rest of Joseph's family join him in Egypt and resettle in that land as immigrants. The people of Israel, Joseph's extended family, then continue to multiply greatly in that land, as the beginning paragraphs of our reading tell us. Eventually, Joseph and all his brothers in that generation die. They pass on. Verse 7, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they continued to multiply greatly and increase in number. Eventually, a new king came into power. He didn't know Joseph, so he felt no obligation whatsoever to treat Joseph's family well. These Hebrew immigrants continued increasing in number and this new king began to see them as a threat to his power. 
We hear this in verse 10, come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. In other words, these immigrants would become a military threat against us. So we need to put them under wraps, keep them under control. What was the solution? Slavery. Verse 11. So they put slave masters over them, the Israelites, to oppress them with forced labor. And in the second half of verse 12, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And you hear the repetition of those words, ruthlessly, ruthlessly, harshly, harshly. It was a terrible condition for God's people to be in. That, remember, was meant to be a solution to keep the Hebrew population under control, but it didn't work. We're told in this narrative they kept multiplying. Indeed, the implication is by God's grace and because of his favor. So we're told in verse 17, not printed, not read earlier, that the king secretly told the midwives to quietly kill the baby boys. This was both a measure of population control and also the presumption that these boys would one day grow up and become soldiers in a potential Israelite army that would then rebel against the Pharaoh. Baby boys were to be killed and yet again, by God's grace, the midwives quietly defied the king. So that solution didn't work. The Israelites kept multiplying again and again. And so this time, the king really took matters into his hands and issued a decree for state-sanctioned infanticide, killing all the Hebrew baby boys in the land. As we read in verse 22, Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Before we move off this part of the narrative as we read this, I want to make sure that you understand that even as the Bible traces out in detail this kind of pain and suffering, this degree of, a, of oppression, there's great comfort in knowing that the Bible is a scripture that doesn't skirt these tragedies and travesties, but rather details them out for all eyes to see and all hearts to feel the pain of oppression and injustice. There's great comfort in knowing that God is neither blind nor deaf to your sufferings. You personally today may not be in a plight as severe as, say, slavery, but whatever hardships you have, as we're told later in verse 24, you need to know today, God hears your groans and your cries. And whatever this coming year has in store for you, and surely it will be mixed with some measure of pain and suffering such as life in a broken world, you can rest assured that God hears your groans and your cries. The story starts as a story of pain and it continues as a story of providence. As we see in the second chapter, the second half of our reading, a wonderful story 
about a man and wife who together have a baby. She becomes pregnant and gave birth to a son. But she hid him for three months, we're told in verse 2. Why? Don't forget the backdrop of the story. Infanticide. It was her duty and the duty of all her neighbors to put this baby boy to death. So for three months, she keeps him quiet as best as she can, muffling the cries, perhaps, or keeping him in the, the furthest corner of the home, far from the windows and the doors. You can almost imagine the anxiety with which this family must have lived with for these three months, the, the hushes, the, the panicked uh, muffles of the, the cries, the whisking the child away from view, if perhaps... He came into view. But then, there was nothing more they could do. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, perhaps he had gotten too big. Perhaps they came to the realization there was no way to keep him perfectly quiet. They reasoned, it seems, that he actually had a better chance to survive out there. Maybe very far out there, rather than in here, nearby, where the threat was greatest. And so this heartbroken mother, you can imagine this moment, decides to place her baby in, in, a, in a carriage, as it were, a water carriage, to float him down the river into a greater place of safety, yet outside of her own arms. She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch in order to make this basket waterproof. It's not of little significance to know that that word papyrus basket is the Hebrew word tevha. The only other place where that word is used is in the early chapters of Genesis in the story of Noah. It's the same word that's translated ark. It's a place of sanctuary and safety, a place where God protects and loves and cares and saves and delivers, even amidst the surroundings of violence and judgment and death. So great is the love of our God, providing an ark for this little baby boy. She placed the child in it and placed it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, the very place where baby boys of Hebrew descent were supposed to be tossed out and killed. Right there in the midst of the danger was God's care and protection and presence. As the baby floated away, his sister, whose name we would later learn, Miriam, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Would he make it? Would he be found? She watched and followed along. And at this moment, footsteps. Uh, more footsteps. A person coming around the corner through the brush. Miriam looks up to notice a person. This is trouble. And then she notices perhaps the headdress and the royal garments of all people. Pharaoh's daughter. 
the moment could not be any worse, a nightmare that just multiplied. The very daughter of the one who had decreed for boys such as her little brother to be killed. The daughter of Pharaoh now coming to the Nile to bathe her attendants walking along the river bank. She sees the basket among the reeds and then sends a female slave to get it. She opens it and sees the baby. He's crying, and then he's a goner, isn't he? I mean, that's what you expect, the way the story is told. That's just what you expect, isn't it? He's done for, maybe just tossed just over her shoulder, right? Putting an end to him, or, or, or maybe taken back to the palace and executed in a different fashion. He was crying, but no, no. God had a different purpose here. She felt sorry for him. An extraordinary turn of events. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then the quick-thinking sister of this baby said, okay, I've got a plan here. She then asked Pharaoh's daughter, well, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Because I, I, I know a woman that could actually nurse this baby. Happens to be his mother, right? To serve as a wet nurse for a time for this young baby. And you're holding your breath and you're wondering how Pharaoh's daughter will reply. And she says a most amazing, yes. Yes, go. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. Not only is the baby's life now saved, but now Moses' mother is getting recompense for her labor. It's almost a taste of liberation, almost a taste of freedom, a little taste of dignity, being treated for a moment, not like a slave, but like a free person. I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became, her son was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water because the Hebrew word Moses, the Hebrew word Mashah sounds like Moses. Forever he would be remembered by this story. He was drawn out of the water. Delivered and saved. What a story. And the story that we have before us is preeminently what you might call a story of the providence of God. The invitation that I want to make to you this morning is this, that we begin this new year with a firm and joyful belief, a hope, and even an excited anticipation for the providence of God to, to take care of you, to take care of your loved ones, to take care of our neighbors and of our city and of our world. Will you reignite in your hearts a belief, even a conviction about the providence of God? You say, well, that sounds great, but I have no idea what you're talking about. What is the providence of God? Here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith defines providence. 
God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. God is ruling over, controlling, caring for, sustaining, and holding all things, all people, all institutions, all nations, all creatures, all events, all moments, all details of life in his hands. And this is the consistent testimony beyond the book of Exodus all throughout the Christian scriptures. As Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Christ sustains all things by his powerful word. Colossians 1 verse 17, in him all things hold together. I'm going to read off a whole bunch of verses here so you can write them down, but I just want to convince you that God truly holds all things together in his hands. Acts 17 verse 25 verse 28, God himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's the one who keeps your lungs going. He's the author of life itself. Psalm 104, verse 14 and verse 21. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. He's the one that sustains even the natural world around us. Proverbs 16, 9, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. So maybe you already have a whole slew of resolutions you've made. Maybe you have a calendar that's already half full. You've got all these plans already charted out for the coming year, or if you're smart, just for the coming week, because who knows what's coming on the next week, right? But the Bible says human beings, people may make their plans. You might have your intentions, but God alone is the one who actually establishes your steps. The only one who can actually actualize the plans that you make. Matthew 10, verse 29 and 30, Jesus' own words here are not two sparrows sold for a penny, Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So, sparrows, city pigeons, God knows them by name. God cares for them, feeds them. How much more so you, who he calls in Christ, my son, my daughter, how much more will he not only love you, but know you in detail? Jesus says he even knows the number of hairs on your head. So great is his concern, detailed concern for you in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. So now we're, we're, we're magnifying the scope of his providential work and care. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises others up. Even the nations, even world events are under the control and reign of God. Providence refers to the truth that God is actively providing for, sustaining, governing, all things in your life, in the world, and especially for those who belong to him 
in Christ. In other words, providence, this doctrine, this rich, beautiful truth we find in Scripture teaches us that God is not only all-powerful, but he's all-purposeful. So providence teaches us not only to say, just say, everything happens for a reason, but rather God has a purpose for everything. God is the author of all things. God loves me in the details of my life. His eye is on the sparrow. How much more is his eye on you and me? You see, because what we find in this story of Exodus in these beginning paragraphs is an amazing story of God directing every detail of what happens here in the most unlikely way. A baby that's born under threat of death who then has to be floated down a river that by chance, by chance, happens to be happened upon by a person that should be the greatest of all threats, and yet because perhaps a turn of this person's heart, Pharaoh's daughter, she actually defies her own dad's edict and rescues this baby. By chance, the daughter of the mother of this baby, so the sister of the baby, Miriam, happens to also be nearby and then happens to have this wonderful plan hatched up in her mind, happens to say it to this woman who then accepts it and then so on and so forth and Moses then is kept safe and is raised the deliverer of God's people. The providence of God at work in these verses. And I want to just make three quick observations about the way providence works, and then we'll close up and have a little Q&A time. Three things that I want to observe from this passage. Number one, God's providence often seems silent and unseen. So you might notice in these verses, there's not a whole lot of mention about God. It's almost like the book of Esther which I know many of you in our life group studied last semester, where intentionally the author does not make much mention of God in order to depict the time of the exile, this is the book of Esther, when it seemed like, felt like, and looked like God was absent. So literarily, the author writes the story of Esther as though God were absent in order to make the point that he was always there. Not unlike that book here also. In the turn of all these events in unexpected ways, everything works out perfectly. And who's behind it all? Though not by name, God. The providence of God is God governing, directing all things for your good and for his glory. But oftentimes, you can't see him at work. Oftentimes, you can't hear what his plans and purposes are. God doesn't intervene or act in any obvious ways, and yet the passage is clear that this here is his work. It takes faith to believe this. It takes faith to believe that the providence of God will catch you. It takes faith, doesn't it, in the midst of a pandemic that sometimes seems to be getting worse before it gets better, that God is carrying you, that God is in your midst, that God is present. What's going on, God, you might cry out. 
It's a mystery. We may not know the mind and the purposes of God, but we do know this. He is here, and we can trust in him. As the writer of the Hebrews reflects upon this story in Exodus, he says, by faith, Moses' mother placed him in the basket and sent him down the Nile River. What does it mean that she did this by faith? It meant she wasn't giving up and punting her kid down the road. She wasn't saying, well, I guess we're all dead anyway. She trusted God and his providence that somehow he would come through for her baby boy. Hope against hope. Will you today dare to hope that God will care for you this year? Because right now, it's really easy to give up on hope. It's really easy to be cynical. It's really easy to be so tired, and aren't we tired, to say, I I don't know where the finish line is. I don't know where this is going. I don't know what to do. It's really easy just to close your heart and say, forget it, I'm done. Will you dare to hope, to put your trust in God, that he will carry you, that he will provide for you, that he will love you, even if his ways are mysterious and unfathomable. Don't forget, God's providence is true, but it's often silent and unseen. Number two, God's providence is stronger than evil. It doesn't mean that God's victory always shows up immediately. Don't forget God's people, the Israelites, were under oppression. They were under slavery for hundreds of years, in fact. So at any given moment, of course, there's circumstances around you might feel like or look like defeat. It can hurt. Jesus himself said, this world, your lives will be full of trouble. But we see time and again in this passage, too, that God's goodness prevails over the evil intentions of the king. He wants to lock them down in slavery. God still multiplies his people. He wants to kill them off secretly, quietly, and God still multiplies his people through the defiance of two Hebrew midwives. God, uh, Pharaoh wants to then uh, broadcast more widely his intent to kill off all these baby boys of Hebrew descent, and yet God rescues this one who will rise up, grow up, and become the deliverer of Israel. God's providence is stronger than evil. And so whatever troubles and trials that you have before you in the coming weeks, in the coming months, in the coming years, Again, we may not know the mind of God. And sometimes God permits for hard things yet to happen. But don't you dare ever forget this. He isn't permitting these things because he doesn't love you. And he certainly isn't doing it because he's too weak to save you. He is mighty to save. He is always with you. And his great strength is stronger than the strongest of evils. As the Apostle Paul said later in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. 
a promise worth clinging to in these uncertain times. In all things. In all things, whether you keep your job or you lose your job. In all things, whether you remain in your apartment or you lose your apartment or it takes a really long time to find your apartment. In all things, whether you stay healthy or you get sick. In all things, in Christ, God's purposes can never be defeated. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. For the good of those who love him. Amen. And thirdly and lastly, God's providence links your life into God's larger purposes. God's providence links your life into God's larger purposes. One of the blessings of this passage is to know this story where God is even right there in the basket, in this ark, a a little tiny baby. Again, the grace of God coming in small packages, the story of the gospel again and again and again. Here's a God who's not so big and large that he's removed and distant and aloof from your real world troubles. Here's a God who is down in the weeds and among the reeds with you. Knows the number of hairs on your head, says Jesus. That's how detailed his providential care really is. But his purposes are big and massive too. And in fact, he links you into them. So this is what I mean. Notice that this is a story about the surprise deliverance of one little baby boy. But we know, of course, if you fast forward through the book of Exodus, or if you're familiar with the story, this isn't just any baby boy. This is the one who would be raised up as the deliverer, the leader of God's people, the covenant mediator, the great Moses. This is his story. His story is linked into God's story. See, this Moses, in being rescued and then adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, was then brought into headquarters of the enemy, learning all the ways of Egyptian culture, learning how to communicate with the Pharaohs, learning how to be comfortable in the spaces of the palace of Pharaoh, where he would be educated throughout his upbringing so that he would become, in time, the best possible equipped leader to lead the exodus of God's people out of slavery and into freedom. You see, God had a purpose not just for Moses in rescuing him that day, but through Moses to rescue his people and indeed the whole world. As commentator John Durham wrote, Moses is spared by being cast onto the very Nile that was to drown him, is treated with maternal kindness by the daughter of the very king who had condemned him, and to whose descendants he would become a nemesis, and is assigned as a responsibility with pay to the one woman in all the world who most wanted the best for him, his own mother. The providence of God working for Moses was the providence of God working for the world. God's purpose is for you always need to be seen in the context of his wider purposes for those beyond you. So in this coming year, as much as we see troubles and trials come our way, think and pray not only for your own well-being, prosperity, and for things to work out for you, 
but think and pray and root also for the same for those around you. Indeed, pray that through you, you might be a blessing to your neighbors, through you, that you might be a blessing to your city and to this world. Pray that God's purposes would work out not just for you, but that God's purposes of deliverance might work again and again for his people and indeed for our whole world. Open wide the scope of your imagination of faith. See beyond your own well-being and root and pray for the shalom of your neighbors around you. Because God's providence can indeed work for them. His oversight, his care, his direction, his governance over all things. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for our nation. Pray for our city. Pray for our world. Because God starts small and he works out big. And in fact, this is the story of Moses too, isn't it? Because this story points us to another Moses, one who was like Moses, but certainly was greater than Moses, one who would lead uh, deliverance, not just out of the clutches of Pharaoh, but out of the clutches of sin. Uh, one who would not only take the people of God uh, through the waters of a sea, but he would take them through the fires of hell. God, Jesus, in fact, who would be the new Moses, born under a death sentence, hunted even by Herod the Great, who was determined to slaughter all newborn babies in Bethlehem in search of the newborn king. Jesus, who was delivered from death as a baby in order to one day die for the sins of you and me. You see, even this story looks ahead to a time when a greater deliverance would come, and that did indeed come Jesus, our great rescuer, our great deliverer, which the providence of God, too, delivered to you and me. This is our great hope, friends. Do you see? There's a lot of ways in which we can be, in the beginning of this year, fatalistic, cynical, or just plain depressed. It is a hard time. But can we rise up? Does not the promises of God give us the ability to rise up with newfound courage, newfound energy, to know that it's not your job to kick down doors and make things happen? It's not your job to eradicate diseases or only your job to keep yourself safe or to keep your neighbor safe. God is on your side. God is for you. God is working on your behalf. God is carrying you in an ark as you float down a river of death. And he loves you. Oh, dear friends, in Christ, he loves you. This is the providence of God. May we start this year believing in it richly and joyfully for our good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this word and we ask that you grant us faith and full hearts to trust in you, to believe in you, and to live in light of your loving providence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.